Jeff? Thank you. Uh, Jim? Family uh, crisis in the Philippines and Mila's side. Okay. Large, large contingent of uh, extended family are potentially being uh, pushed out of their house. Hmm. Thank you. We'll definitely be keeping her family in prayer. We have a number of people not feeling well today, so the Dottels and the Coxes are um, sick today, and so and others. So keep keep those who are unwell this morning in prayer. Ashley. Well, thank, thank you for sharing those requests. And please stand, if you're able, for our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 103, verses uh, 1 through 5. Uh, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Tony, do we have the... No. Is it not working? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to that, that prayer of thanksgiving in your order of worship. So please follow along with me as we continue to seek to cultivate this virtue of, of gratitude and thanksgiving, uh, praying not only with our lips, but especially with our hearts, saying, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, do give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your inestimable love and the redemption of the world. May the Lord Jesus Christ, and for the means of grace, and for the hope of glory. And we ask you, Give us that due sense of all your mercies, that our hearts may be sincerely thankful, and that we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service, and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3 this morning. 
Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of, one of the minor prophets towards the back of your Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 3. This morning in our catechism, we will be considering that glorious doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith. We'll see how Zechariah 3 foreshadows for us how Jesus accomplishes this free justification that we receive by faith before God. So Zechariah chapter 3. And Zechariah is structured around these eight visions that the prophet receives. And so this vision consists, uh, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge over my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Uh, may he write it upon our hearts this morning. Yeah, it's on. I don't know why it's not. Yeah, I don't know why. It's not good. Well, please turn in your order of worship to uh, the confessional reading section. This morning we will be confessing together Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23, which consists of question and answers 59 through 61. So Lord's Day 23, question and answers 59 through 61. I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 59 asks, But how does it help you now that you believe all this? That I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir to life everlasting. Question 60 asks, how are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, 
of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil. Nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Question 61 asks, Why do you say that through faith alone you are righteous? Not because I please God by the worthiness of my faith, for only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness are my righteousness before God, and I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith only. Well, boys and girls, as a means of, of review, what are the three sections of our catechism? Lonnie? Guilt, and which section are we in? Grace. Grace. Very good. And what is the definition of true faith? Lily? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And the content of this faith is? Lise? Knowledge, Yes. What are those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in? Noel? Very good. We got two, two responses there. Yes, the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you look with me in our current Lord's Day, question 59 asks, what does it help you that you believe all this? What do you think that all this is referring to? The Apostles' Creed. We have just finished considering the catechism's exposition of every phrase of the creed as the definition or as the content of, of true faith. Those things that we need to know, assent to, and trust in. And now question 59 is stepping back and asking, so what does it help you that believe all this, that you profess true faith? Another way you could rephrase this question is, what are some of the benefits of true faith? What benefits do we receive when we profess true faith? Now, when you think about that question, I'm, I'm sure lots of things come to mind. The benefits that we receive when we come to Christ by faith. Now, you may think of, of benefits such as community. When we profess faith, become a, a Christian, usually we're, we're enfolded within a Christian community. You may think of some of the subjective benefits of having joy or peace or comfort, now having purpose to life and having a way to explain the sufferings of life, as we considered earlier this morning. But notice the answer that question 59 gives us. The two arguably main benefits that we receive when we profess faith in Christ are that we are righteous in Christ, and an heir of everlasting life. Those are the two benefits that the authors of this catechism are singling out as being some of the chief benefits that we receive when we profess faith. It focuses especially upon this righteousness. How are we righteous before God? 
which then is the subject of question and answer 60. Question and answer 60, which is a wonderful, wonderful question and answer. Ask, how are you righteous in Christ? If righteousness is one of the main benefits of professing faith, then how are we righteous in Christ? What's the, bene- what's the relationship between faith and this righteousness? Now, you'll notice in question and answer 60, the catechism bookend, bookends this answer with references to soli fide, faith alone. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. And then it concludes by saying, if we accept such benefits with a believing heart. It begins and ends with reference to faith. As a way in which uh, we are made righteous before Christ. Now, this catechism then, the answer moves on to to speak about how we all have a, a conscience which testifies against us. It testifies against us. Now, this is evidence that we have God's law written upon our our hearts. In Romans chapter 2, which is the section of, of Romans, which is the guilt section. If you recall, Romans is structured the same way the catechism is structured. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. In Romans chapter 2, which comes in the guilt section of the book of Romans, Paul is dealing with the question of how can God hold Gentiles accountable if he did not give them the law? The law, the Mosaic law, was given uniquely to the people of Israel. And thus, it's obvious why the Jews are held accountable before God's judgment. But what about the Gentiles who have never received the written law of God? How can God still hold them accountable to his divine law? And Paul's answer in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, is that the way or the means by which God can hold even Gentiles accountable is through the law that is written upon the hearts of every image bearer. Paul says that even the Gentiles have the law written upon their hearts and thus their consciences accuse them or excuse them on that day, that final day of judgment, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Notice the connection that Paul's making there between the law written upon our hearts and our conscience. The way in which the law written upon our hearts testifies against us or speaks to us is through our conscience. Now, of course, because of sin, that, that conscience has been skewed and, and perverted in certain ways. However, the way in which the law written upon our hearts testifies against us is through our conscience. And thus, when the catechism says our conscience accuses us, this is uh, telling us that we have the law, God's law written upon our hearts. What's the substance then of this accusation? You'll see that the catechism then delineates the substance of this accusation that our conscience levels against us. Catechism says that our conscience accuses us that we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and have never kept any of them. Now when we first hear that, that might seem a bit strong. Really? Grievously sinned against every commandment and never kept any of them? 
this is completely true. If we're comparing ourselves to God's law, not any other, not a human law or someone else's standard, even our own standard, but if we're comparing ourselves to God's law, then there is not one commandment that we can point to and say, yeah, I've kept that. I'm blameless when it comes to that issue. Even our best works are completely corrupt, defiled, and tainted with sin. And so, yes, when we are measured against God's law, we have grievously sinned against every commandment of God and have never kept any of them perfectly. But the catechism goes on. Notice how it says that our conscience also accuses us that we are prone towards all evil. This tells us not just that we sin, but this phrase tells us that we are sinners. This is speaking to our inward disposition, our being. We sin because we're sinners. We have a natural inclination towards evil, wickedness, sin, the breaking of God's law. And this disposition began in the moment of our conception. Psalm 51, David says, in sin, Did my mother conceive me? That's the beginning of this sin problem. So according to the catechism, what's our problem? If we use the the language of Jesus and his illustration of a tree and its fruits, uh, what, what this question and answer is telling us is that we have a rotten root that produces rotten fruit. Or to use a language from Psalm 24, we have an impure heart and unclean hands. We have a corrupt inner disposition that then produces corrupt actions. Our conscience accuses us that we have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, never kept any of them, and are uh, inclined towards all evil. Now what's God's response to this? Does he say, well, yeah, that might be true, but you're not, there's still a little bit of goodness in you. You're, you're, not, you're, not, you're a little bit better than those people over there. And, you know, I see a little bit of, of, of sliver of goodness right, right here in that corner of your life. Does he try to just boost our self-esteem? Notice, notice what the catechism does in response. It points us away from ourselves. Yeah, yeah, just forget about yourself. There is no hope if you look within. If you look within... You hear accusations that have truth to them based on God's law. You have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. You are inclined towards all evil. And so the catechism points us away from ourselves to what Christ has done for us in history. That's where our hope and comfort lies. The catechism points to to three particular aspects of Christ's work on our behalf. Notice how it says that God credits or imputes to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Now, we may expect to hear this reference to God granting to us the righteousness of Christ. This whole question and answer is framed around how are you righteous in Christ? That makes sense. But why these other two words? Why this reference to satisfaction and holiness? Well, the way that the authors of, of our catechism constructed this question and answer is beautiful. So, the satisfaction of Christ 
refers to how Christ, through his death, satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. So that we can now be in a reconciled relationship with God. Puts away our sins so that we can hear those promises that as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our transgressions. This brings us then to, in some sense, a neutral state before God. But of course, this doesn't earn us the right to stand in God's holy presence. Just because we, our sin has been put away, the Bible is very clear that we need positive righteousness, holiness, to stand in God's presence. Think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And so the catechism goes on to say that God also grants to us the righteousness of Christ. The good fruits that Christ produced in his earthly life. The many times in which he actively obeyed God's law on our behalf. Where he chose to obey God's word and not the serpent's word. The times in which he demonstrated his clean hands. Those clean hands. His good fruits are credited to us. But it's also his holiness that's credited to us. His holiness. Now what's his holiness referred to? Well, it's referring to his inward disposition. Jesus was the only human being who was conceived apart from sin. David says, and this is true of all of us who have Adam as our father, in sin my mother conceived me. Well, that was not true for Jesus. He was conceived in righteousness. He was the only person who lived who had an inclination towards holiness and righteousness and obedience. And that inward disposition is granted or credited or imputed to you so that in God's sight, it's as if you have a pure heart and clean hands. It's as if you have a good root and good fruit as God sees you in Christ. Catechism goes on to summarize what it has taught us so far. And it says that in God's sight, it's as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. Again, that's linking back to the accusations of our conscience. That we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and are inclined towards all evil. But now, because of Christ's satisfaction on our behalf, it's as if in God's sight we have never sinned nor been a sinner in terms of our fruit or our root. And as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. God grants to us Christ's holiness and his righteousness, his holy disposition and his holy good works and merits. So that when God sees you, he sees someone who has never sinned and someone who has always obeyed. This is what we mean when we confess that we are righteous in Christ by faith only. Now question 61 goes on to explain, well, why do you speak so adamantly that you are righteous in Christ by faith only? Why this emphasis on faith? Question 61 makes it very clear that faith is not a work. Sometimes, sometimes we as Protestants can, can begin to think that, 
that we're not saved by works, but we're saved by a work. Meaning we're saved by the one good work, and that good work is faith. That's not what we mean when we confess justification by faith alone. Faith is an instrument by which we grab a hold of Christ. What makes your faith saving is not the strength of your faith, but the presence of faith, which attaches you to Christ, and Christ is your righteousness, your forgiveness of sins, your entrance into life eternal. I once heard this described with reference to... to, uh, Frozen lakes and ice fishing has probably stuck with me because originally from Minnesota, that's a favorite pastime uh, in, in the Midwest. And, you know, imagine you're going out onto a, a frozen lake to ice fish. And, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter the, your subjective feelings about the ice. What matters is how thick that ice is. You can have all the confidence in the world that a quarter inch of ice is going to hold you, but that confidence doesn't matter when you start to walk out onto that ice. You're going to fall right through. On the flip side, if you have very little confidence in faith that a two feet of ice is going to hold you, at the end of the day, you're fine. Even though your subjective confidence is low, that ice will hold you. The object of your faith is strong. So it is with our faith in Christ. What makes our faith saving is not how strong it is, but whether its object is Christ. And Christ is strong. He will hold us. This is what we confess. Well, I'd like to uh, conclude our time by reflecting on briefly how Lord's Day 23 corresponds with what we read in Zechariah 3. It's always great when we have certain passages of Scripture that correspond directly with our catechism questions. Uh, All of our catechism questions and answers correspond with Scripture, but it's great when you can look to one passage and you see many of the elements that we confess. I believe Zechariah 3 is is one of those passages. As I mentioned, Zechariah is a, uh, the book of Zechariah is referred to as a minor prophet. Zechariah was ministering during the time when the first wave of exiles uh, were coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem. King Cyrus of Persia commissioned the rebuilding of the second temple, after that first temple was decimated by the Babylonians. Zechariah was then sent by God to encourage these exiles in the rebuilding of this second temple. Now the book of Zechariah is structured around these eight visions that God gives the prophet. This vision in Zechariah 3 is a vision that involves, yes, God, but also Joshua the high priest, Satan is there. This scene depicts a, a court scene, a judicial, uh, a judicial court scene. Now you'll notice that this, this passage begins with a reference to Satan being there. So the Lord is portrayed as judge. Satan is, is the plaintiff, as it were. He's the one bringing the accusations against Joshua and in verse 1, we, we come across this, this title, this name Satan. Now the Hebrew word for Satan literally means the accuser. And in Hebrew, if you take that same, that same word that means accuser and put it in, in, as a verb, you get the verb to accuse. 
And so in the original language here, you have the same word being used twice. You just have it used as a noun and then as a verb. So Satan here is the accuser coming to accuse. He's coming to accuse Joshua, the high priest. And the Lord, the Lord rebukes Satan. Now in the Greek translation of, of the Old Testament, this word for rebuke in the Greek is then picked up by the gospel writers when Jesus is rebuking the winds and the waves when he calms the storm with his disciples. So this should clue us in that this is the powerful word of God that's on display. The Lord rebukes Satan. This is the word that created all things. This is the word that brings new life to dead sinners. Now notice the content of Satan's accusations. It seems to be with regard to Joshua's filthy garments. Now many commentators believe that, that this scene is depicting not just a judicial scene, but also the Day of Atonement. Now the Day of Atonement was the high point of the Jewish calendar, for this was the day when the high priest would go into the very inner sanctum of the temple and atone for the sins and the guilt of God's people. The high priest wore pure garments to symbolize their office and their need to be pure in order to stand in God's holy presence and mediate on behalf, on behalf of a sinful people. But Joshua doesn't have pure vestments on. Joshua has filthy garments on, which symbolizes his unworthiness for the task, symbolizes his, not his purity, but his sinfulness. Satan is accusing him in this regard. Now, what does God do? God doesn't say, well, you know, Joshua, you are pretty filthy, but if you look on the, the back part of your, your, your garment, there, there's a little bit of cloth there that's, that's been uh, untainted by the filth. He doesn't do that. He strips Joshua's filthy garments and dresses him in pure vestments. Puts a clean turban on, on his head. And then later on in, in this, in this uh, chapter, we have a reference, a, a promise of this, this coming branch. In verse 8, God assures Joshua and says, I will bring my servant the branch. Now throughout the prophets, this reference to the branch is a reference to Christ, the Messiah who is to come. So just step back for a moment and notice some of the themes that come out from this chapter. You have a courtroom scene. God is the judge. You have an accuser who's bringing accusations against Joshua that he is unworthy of his office, that he is sinful. Then you have God responding by stripping Joshua of his filthy garments and dressing him with pure vestments and then promising this branch who is to come. I'd like to just reflect upon how this corresponds beautifully with what we confess in question and answer 60. Remember, question and answer 60 begins with how our conscience accuses us of our filthy garments. That we have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments are inclined towards all evil. And God, he doesn't try to boost our self-esteem. 
He strips our filthy garments by imputing to us Christ's satisfaction. But more than that, he dresses us in Christ's pure vestments of holiness and righteousness so that we can stand in God's holy presence. Now think for a moment about how dress, clothes, function in our society. Now, of course, we get dressed not merely for pragmatic reasons, to keep warm, to cover our bodies for modesty reasons. Now, dress does serve those purposes, but many people... Uh, wear clothes to express their individuality, especially in our day and age. But we also can think of many professions that have a certain attire that points to their office. So you think of a doctor, uh, you think of a pilot, you think of a, a member of the armed services, think of a judge. They have certain attire that points to their office. So when you see that attire, you think of the office. In fact, this is part of the reason why uh, churches of the Reformation have historically, um, or minister, ministers of churches of the Reformation historically have, have worn preaching gowns, Genevan robes, not vestments, but just simple black gowns to indicate the office of minister of warden sacrament. Because these, some of these churches have, have recognized that pastors, when they're ministering in an official capacity, proclaiming the word, they should not be expressing their individuality through their dress, but rather expressing the office of warden sacraments. Just as the attire of these other professions do when you know, a doctor's in a white coat. You, think, you don't think of their individual personality or background. You think of what they're trained to do. Now, one of the reasons why, for instance, I don't wear a gown is many people today don't see a gown rolling by a minister on Sunday and think, wow, how refreshing. The minister's personality is, is stepping back and the word is so central. They think of Roman Catholicism. But nonetheless, we have that principle where you have a tire pointing to a certain office. Well, with the priesthood in the Old Testament, it was the same thing. These vestments, their pure vestments pointed to their office, which included them standing before God's holy presence and mediating on behalf of the people. And so that's why 1 Peter 2, Peter speaks about how we all as Christians are a holy priesthood because we are the recipients of Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. We are priests in the sense that we all can stand in God's holy presence, not an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly sanctuary. We need no earthly mediator. We all can approach God through a heavenly mediator and intercessor. Now, oftentimes, Jesus throughout the uh, Gospels will point to physical things in our world as reminders to us. Or he tells us to think about these, these things, these ordinary, mundane, physical things in our world, uh, and, and allow them to serve as reminders to us of theological truths. So think, for instance, when Jesus points to the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. He says, when you see this very mundane, ordinary, common experience of a bird flying through the air or, or grass, let that remind you of God's heavenly care, heavenly, heavenly care for you as his children. In the same way, getting dressed is something that we do every day. 
We oftentimes see people in official professional attire pointing to their office. Let these simple, mundane, and ordinary occurrences remind us of this glorious theological truth that in Christ we have been dressed in Christ's pure vestments and thus we have the right to boldly approach God in his throne of grace. We have the right to cast our anxieties upon him because he cares for us. That's not something we should take for granted. We are priests and this is a glorious reality. So how are you righteous? We are righteous in Christ by faith alone. Well, next week, uh, we're going to consider an objection that the catechism responds to. Okay, you say that the only way in which you are uh, worthy to stand before God is by Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. It has nothing to do with your works or performance. Then how will this not lead to utter immorality? What incentive do we have to obey if our obedience plays nothing in our standing before God? That's the objection that the catechism will be responding to next week. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for uh, your grace to us. We thank you for making us righteous before your judgment seat by imputing to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Thank you that in your sight, you view us as those who have never sinned nor been a sinner, and you view us as those who have perfectly obeyed as Christ has obeyed in our place. We pray that you would assure us of these great and glorious truths, through the the simple and mundane tasks that we go through in our ordinary life, such as putting on our own clothes in the morning. May we be reminded that we have died and risen with Christ and we are clothed in his pure vestments. Oh Lord, we also bring before you the the concerns of your people. We pray for uh, the doctors this week as as uh, Noelle will have her appointment with the rheumatologist. We pray that you grant the doctors wisdom. We pray that it would be uh, they, would, they would hear good news and, and that uh, they, would ha- they would be able to um, decrease on, on the medication. Uh, we pray that you would continue to give Jeff wisdom in his, his, his circumstances, his relationships. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would en- enable him by your, the power of your Holy Spirit uh, to, be, uh, to be heavy on affirmation, to be heavy on, on, on pointing people to the gospel. And, and to be wise and winsome when he does um, um, give people your law, which we do also need to hear. Uh, we pray for Mila's family in the Philippines. We pray that you would uh, grant peace to them and comfort during this difficult time. And we also pray that you would be working in the midst of these troubling circumstances. Uh, we pray for uh, the Dottels. We pray for the Coxes. We pray for others among us who are sick or not feeling well today. We pray that you would uh, heal them, that they would be able to get over the, uh, the sickness fast and be able to quickly return to their ordinary lives and vocations. We pray that you'd bless us as we go forth from this place and as we begin our week, um, uh, begin our common week tomorrow that you would enable us to continue to glorify you and serve our neighbor. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
All right, well, let's uh, stand and uh, respond to, uh, to this word by singing number 226. Tony, is, the, is it still not working? Okay. Okay. Do you just want to play it from the phone? Receive now God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.